Uh, today's scripture reading is from Mark 6, 1 to 13. Can we all stand for the reading of God's word? He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseus, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his, household, in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he, and he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of God. Good afternoon again, and welcome once again to this gathering of New Hope Fellowship. Um, it's great to see all of you. If you're a guest with us, we're especially thankful for your presence here today. And uh, we'd love to get to know you uh, if you're a guest here, if you're able to stick around after the service. There is one particular guest that I want to introduce, uh, Richie Chen. Richie, could you stand up for just a moment? Guys, this is Richie Chen. Richie is a missionary who's raising support right now. Thank you, sister. You can sit down if you like. But she was raising support um, currently to serve as part of a church planting team in Japan. And so I got to, our family got to meet Richie just this past week through brothers and sisters at a sister church. And um, she's here to worship with us today. But after this, today's worship service, um, some of us are hoping to get together with Richie and hear more about her story and about her plans and her vision for ministry and what God's doing um, in her life and, 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 and what she hopes God will do through her um, in the Synod House. Around 4.15 or so, we'll get together in the Synod House next door and get to know Richie better. Um, all of you, anyone who's interested is, is invited to join us for that time. Please pray with me as we look at God's word. Our Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the truth that you have for us today. We pray that you would do away with any blindness, any distractions, anything that would keep us from coming into contact with life-changing, life-saving truth. We ask, Lord, that you'd make us receptive to you and to all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt the sting of rejection? It's painful, isn't it, when, when someone doesn't accept you or doesn't want you around, you feel left out or pushed away, 
it, it hurts. It hurts a lot. I don't think it ever stops hurting completely. The passage that Wing just read to us shows us that Jesus knows what rejection feels like. Jesus knows what rejection feels like. This passage also is going to show us that if you're a follower of Jesus, you should expect rejection too. If it happened to him, then it'll happen to anyone who knows him and loves him too. He, he promises us that. But lastly, this passage also shows us that because we know and love Jesus, if you know and love Jesus, then knowing and loving him will equip you to deal with rejection when it comes. In other words, Jesus himself gives us the resources. He can give you the ability to face rejection and be okay. So those are the three things we're going to look at today in this passage. First, Jesus knows rejection. Secondly, Jesus' followers will know rejection. And thirdly, Jesus' followers know Jesus. And that makes all the difference. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes home. That, That is, he goes to the place where he had grown up. He had recently been attracting crowds. He'd been healing people from diseases. He'd been freeing people from demons. He'd been raising the dead even. So he should have been welcomed home with pride. There should have been a parade at this homecoming to welcome this man home. But that's not what happened. Instead, he encountered judgment. He encountered hostility in his hometown. And that's the first thing we need to see here today. Jesus knows rejection. So the setting is this town called Nazareth. Population was as low as 200 people. It's such an insignificant place that it's not even mentioned in all the Old Testament. Nazareth gets one mention in the Gospel of John when when a man named Nathaniel hears about Jesus of Nazareth. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In other words, Nazareth is not where heroes come from. It's certainly not where you'd expect the Savior of the world to come from. And and Jesus understood, because Jesus knew that people did not think very highly of Nazareth. I I can relate. I'm from New Jersey, and I know how that feels. In any case, Jesus went back there with his disciples, and he did what he usually did when he arrived in a new town. He he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, that is on, on Saturday, and he taught. And, and people were amazed with him until they became hostile toward him. Verse 2 says, many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They had probably heard about the healings and the exorcisms. Maybe some of them had witnessed them firsthand. But verse 3, they said, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? In other words, they're saying, we know this guy. He's a carpenter. And carpenter could have meant, it could have meant handyman. It could have meant a construction worker. In in, in any case, we know that a a carpenter, he he builds things. he, He fixed things. It was a respectable job for sure. So it's not like they were necessarily denigrating him by calling him a carpenter, but they were saying, he's one of us. Where does he get off presenting himself as a rabbi? Where does he get off doing these things and saying these things? He's no better than us. And at the end of verse 3, it says, and they took offense at him. 
literally, they were scandalized. They were saying, who does he think he is? And look at verse 4, how Jesus responds. He said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. You've heard the saying that familiarity breeds contempt. To them, Jesus was familiar. They watched him grow up. They knew his family. And this wasn't the kind of place where people didn't know each other. It's not the kind of place where people remain distant or anonymous, like, like some of the neighborhoods we might live in, barely know what's going on in each other's lives. No, they knew what was going on in the household of Mary. In fact, they say, isn't this the son of Mary? And that's interesting, interesting word choice, because these folks would have remembered the, the sketchy circumstances surrounding Mary's pregnancy and Jesus' birth. There were questions They had heard the rumors. Maybe some of them had even spread the rumors. In this culture, people would normally trace a person's lineage through their father. So it would have been more customary for them to say, isn't this the son of Joseph? They didn't do that. And that might mean nothing. I don't want to read too much into it. It could just be because Joseph was dead at this point. And so they said, the son of Mary. But it might mean more than that. It might be more than that. They may have been belittling Jesus. A side-handed remark, a backhanded remark, a a way of of saying, isn't this Mary's little illegitimate boy? We're we're not even even sure who his dad was. Pause to think about all this for just a moment. The eternal Son of God submitted himself to life in in a household, in a family, with all that that implies. And you know what it's like to grow up in a family. There's sibling conflict if you have siblings. There's unfairness. There's family drama. There's pain. And not only that, he submitted to life in a poor family, in a nowhere town like Nazareth. His neighbors should have been honored that God would send his Messiah to dwell among them, but instead they don't even respect him. Isn't it true that we can spend so much time with someone that we no longer appreciate them? For those of us raised in church, raised in a Christian family, this is something we need to be aware of. We can start to take Jesus for granted. Like, yeah, I know him. I know the stories. In a sense, we should never get comfortable with Jesus. His goal is not just to make us comfortable with him. What I mean is not that we should not feel comforted by him. What I mean is that we should not get to the point of feeling so comfortable with him. He's so known, he's so familiar, that he doesn't even matter. No, Jesus' goal is to bring us to repentance and faith in him, to find safety and rest in him, yes, to confess him as Lord. It raises the question for us, do you see Jesus for who he truly is and claims to be as Lord, as Savior, as King? Do you see him that way? Does he set the agenda for your life? Because if he is Savior and Lord and King, then certainly he has the right to set the agenda for your life. He's deserving of your worship, of your obedience. Or are you so comfortable with him to the point that he doesn't really even matter? Now, look, Jesus had faced rejection before. 
We've, we've seen it in the book of Mark. We saw a few chapters earlier. Some people insulted Jesus. Some people sent him away. Some people accused him of being evil. Some people even planned to kill him. But what's interesting is that not only that Jesus was rejected by some people, what's, re- what's really fascinating is that he was rejected by all sorts of people. That is, he was rejected by Jewish people and by Gentile people. He was rejected by elite people and by pig farmers, by Pharisees and Herodians, religious and political antagonists. People who hated each other could unite around their hate for Jesus. (laughs) He was hated by all sorts of folks. He had a very diverse group of haters. I wonder if anyone here is rejecting Jesus. Not, not overtly, necessarily, but perhaps in subtle ways. Is there anyone who is refusing to receive him as king? Refusing to submit your life to him? Or maybe you're rejecting him as savior because you've convinced yourself that you don't need forgiveness. You don't need salvation. I ask you to, to reflect. Are, are, are there ways in which you are subtly stiff-arming Jesus? Refusing to trust in him, refusing to receive him for who he is. If so, I invite you to ask yourself why. There must be reasons, and maybe there are reasons that need to be addressed. What is it about him that offends you or causes you not to trust him? Are there things about Jesus that bother you? If so, what are they? What are they? Is it what he says about himself? What he says about you that bothers you? Is it what he commands that you find offensive? Pastor Tim Keller had a a helpful thought for those of us who are troubled or offended by Jesus. He said, quote, there may be things about Jesus that disturb you, but Jesus has been offensive to people at all times and in all cultures. It's an interesting perspective. You see, as 21st century Western folks, we're likely to find certain, certain teachings of Jesus to be offensive. Like, we might find certain things that he says to be very restrictive and, and narrow. Many in our culture might feel that way. Things he has to say about sex and sexuality. Things he has to say about how we would live our daily lives. We might look and say, oh, that's, that's restrictive. It's, it's, it's antiquated. It's narrow. Some might even say it's hateful. Some of us, maybe, maybe we, what we take issue with is we don't like the Bible's claims that Jesus healed people, that he raised people from the dead, that he himself was raised from the dead, because all of that can sound to us like mythology. To modern ears, it sounds phony. Now, those are the things that people in backwards places believe, and so some will reject him on that basis. Or maybe, maybe it's his claim that no one can find acceptance with God and forgiveness from God apart from him. It's the exclusivity of his words that maybe offend you and cause you to reject him. What he says about you, perhaps you find offensive. He says to us that we are sinners in need of forgiveness, deserving of rejection from God. He says we've alienated ourselves from God, and the only way to find acceptance and forgiveness is through faith, belief in him. Those are, those are 
teachings that so many in our culture would find problematic. Those are some of the common objections for us. But at other times, and in other cultures, in other parts of the world, the objections would have looked very different. Right? So in some places, the notion that Jesus claims to be the only way to God, some might say, okay, I I get that. Not sure I believe it, but I get it. I understand it. But, but some, in some cultures might be offended by the idea that he offers salvation uh, by grace, freely, that you don't work for it. He just gives it to you undeserved. Some cultures might find that repulsive. They think, man, getting something without earning it, that, that's dishonorable. In some places, maybe Jesus' call to extend love to your enemies might be considered offensive. And so Jesus would be rejected for that. But you see, in one way or another, Jesus' words and actions are scandalous in any culture, just in different ways. So we tend to think of our particular objections as, as reasonable. But that's how the people in Nazareth felt. It's how the scribes and the Pharisees felt. Even though they all stumbled over, they were all offended by something different. What we see is that Jesus... And no one, no one is naturally predisposed to agree with him on everything. That everyone, regardless of your background, the era in which you live, there's much that you will find in him and in his teaching that will seem counterintuitive to you. That will be hard for you to accept. But, but look, here's the thing. If Jesus is in fact God, then shouldn't we expect that? Like, shouldn't we expect God to contradict us and to challenge us? On, on fundamental aspects of our worldview. After all, if you want a God who perfectly fits your way of thinking, who seems to agree with you on everything, never challenges you, or put a God who agrees with you on everything, then you're really looking for a God who's made in your own image, aren't you? A custom-designed Savior, and that's not who Jesus is, and it's not who we need Because Jesus says, I've made you in my image. And if you repent and if you acknowledge me as Lord, I will bring healing. I will bring forgiveness and wholeness into your life. I will give you the right to be called children of God. If you will receive me. Now Jesus knew rejection. Because his character and his message... Everything about him, it was countercultural in every culture. He experienced lots of rejection. But, but this scene in Nazareth, this is particularly different. Verse 6 says, look, it says, Jesus marveled at their unbelief. It's so interesting. They, the people were astonished by Jesus' teaching, but he was astonished by their skepticism, by their unbelief. And this scene is so unique. And in verse 5, Mark writes these words. He says, and Jesus could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. This is interesting for two reasons. One, the very idea that he says he could do no mighty work there. We have to ask, what's going on there? Why? What? But it's also interesting that he says no mighty work, except, except for laying hands on a few sick people and healing them. If we were to see this happen, we'd be amazed. For Jesus, it was, it was a slow day. This is nothing, just a, just a few healings. 
But the question is, why was he not able? It says, why could he not do mighty works there? And on the surface, it might look like, did, did Jesus lose his power? What, what's going on? Like, because, he, because people didn't believe in him, he lost his power? Like, wasn't there a movie, like, people stopped believing in Santa Claus, and so he lost the, I don't know, some, some ridiculous thing like that? He, he was no longer Santa Claus because people didn't believe anymore. This is not a superhero who somehow lost, you know, it's not Superman facing the kryptonite of their unbelief. It's not, you know, Miles Morales losing his uh, spidey powers. We, we need to see what's going on here because it shows us how God works This is actually really important. In Mark and the other Gospels, Jesus heals people and he forgives people in response to faith. We can see it over and over again. There was the leper in Mark 1. There was the paralyzed man in Mark 4. There was the bleeding woman we looked at last week in Mark 5. There was Jairus and his daughter in Mark 5. In these crowds that were coming to him, it's always the same pattern again and again and again. There's faith, there's belief in him. Sometimes it's very weak faith, as Tim preached to us last week. Small faith, weak, burgeoning, flickering faith. But there's faith. And when people come to him with even weak faith, and they come to him for help, he provides it again and again and again. On the other hand, those who who are offended by Jesus, who resist and reject him, who show a kind of settled opposition to him, sometimes he will rebuke them, but sometimes he just leaves them alone. He leaves them and moves on. And that may bother us, (laughs) but think about it this way. Jesus is not just a miracle worker. He is not just a healer. He's not just a man with the power to cure disease and cast out demons and forgive sin. No, no, no. Here's what we must see. Healing and forgiveness are actually found in him. Wholeness is found in him, and it becomes ours through connection with him. You see, Jesus never says, I can give you life. No, he says, I am the life. So that means that to come to him into relationship with him to be united to him by faith, by believing in him, we get life. But to reject him is to reject life. To reject him is to reject eternal healing. To reject freedom. Another way to think about it is this. All of Jesus' miracles were, were signs of the kingdom. They show us what his kingdom looks like. Where Jesus comes to rule, there is healing. There, eternally, there will be no more disease or death. Where Jesus rules and where, as he rules in his kingdom eternally, there will no longer be blindness. There will no longer be conflict. There will no longer be sin. And so with each miracle, he's showing us, this is what my kingdom looks like. This is what life under my eternal rule will look like. And every time he's rejected, Each person who's rejecting him is saying, I don't want in that kingdom. I would prefer to be on the outside with my sin, with my suffering.
You see, Jesus didn't travel around just handing out miracles, right? You get a miracle, you get a miracle, you get a healing. It wasn't like that. He wanted people to see that he is what we need. And we only find wholeness by entrusting ourselves, entrusting our lives to him. And so as people came to him and put even weak faith, small faith in him, he said, here's what life in my kingdom looks like. Here's what life in relationship to me looks like. Healing, forgiveness, wholeness, all to be found in me. So no, Jesus didn't lose his power. (laughs) But what people found is if they were rejecting him, then they were rejecting all the good, all the good that is to be found in him. And the same is true for us. To the degree that we resist him, we're resisting and rejecting all the good that he has for us in himself. As we've been studying the gospel of Mark, I've been asking God to help each of us see who Jesus is for who he is, that God wouldn't allow a familiarity or, or objections or anything else to blind us to who he is and what he offers us in himself. So if you have doubts about him, that's okay. Bring them to him. Bring them to him. Even if your faith is weak and tentative, he will not reject you. Don't reject him. Don't reject him. Even in Nazareth, some people did believe, it seems, but mostly what Jesus found there was rejection. And that brings us to our second, much shorter point. Jesus' followers will know rejection too. Look at what it says in verse 7. Jesus called the 12 apostles, those are the apostles, and his, his messengers, his representatives, and he, he had chosen earlier, and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics, travel in light. And he said to them, verse 10, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent and repent. As I've said before, it means to turn around. It means to turn away from the way in which you're living. Turn away from the things that you're worshiping. Turn away from your own little kingdom that you're building and turn towards Jesus. And find in him true life, a better kingdom, a better king. And find in him salvation. Verse 13 says, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So you see what Jesus is doing there. He sent them out to do what he had been doing. It's the same thing. Preach the coming of the kingdom and repentance and belief in the gospel. It's basically the same. When it, he says, you know, they, they were telling people to repent. That seems to echo the message that Jesus has been preaching from the beginning. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Believe in the gospel. And he sends them out to heal. And to cast out demons, which is exactly what he had been doing. They're like little Jesus representatives, ambassadors of Jesus' kingdom. 
and built into the instructions that he gives them was what to do if and when they met with disinterest or they met with hostility. The assumption is some people are going to reject you. And so in verse 11, Jesus says, when that happens, shake the dust off your sandals as a testimony against them. This would have sounded more familiar to the people who originally read the Gospel of Mark. Because Jewish people would, at the time, when they returned home from foreign land, they came back to Israel from foreign Gentile land, they they would often shake the dust off their feet, off their sandals. It was a way of leaving behind what was foreign and coming back home to the safety and the welcome of home. And so in some way, Jesus is telling them to, to, to mark this rejection by shaking the dust off your sandals, and it doesn't mean go to hell. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean you are responsible for what I've told you. You are responsible for what you've seen. You see, that this, this dramatic act, it was, it was meant to encourage reflection, perhaps even to encourage repentance and, and a willingness to receive the gospel that they had heard. And by the way, this is not prescriptive for us. This is not what God is telling us to do. We're not apostles, first of all. But he has told us to serve as his ambassadors, his representatives in this world who communicate the message of the gospel. So Jesus prepared these 12 apostles to deal with rejection because he knew as they served and taught in his name, the rejection that he received, they were going to receive too. It was going to hit them. Jesus says as much. Look at John 15, verse 18. It says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 1 John 3, 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, but the, that the world hates you. And these are not unique to John. These, these, these warnings or these promises that we should expect. Rejection. This, of course, doesn't mean that everyone is going to hate you. When he says the world hates you, it doesn't mean the whole, it means all kinds of people, though. Just like Jesus had a diverse group of haters, his followers should expect to have a diverse group of haters, too. We may think at times, and sometimes you might think that, well, you know, the people on this side of the political aisle, they, they hate me, they hate Christians, but the folks over here on this side, they, I'm good with them. No, you're not. Not necessarily. No, you're not. Not when the word of God begins to bring offense again. And Jesus' words rub them the wrong way. Suddenly you'll find that you're not at home in either of these parties, to use that example. You see, what Jesus is saying is that you should expect rejection from different kinds of people. From every party, from every demographic. Because Jesus' words will be offensive to diverse people from many cultures and many perspectives. They always have been. We cannot strip Jesus of his offensiveness. And if we faithfully represent him, it's very likely that we will offend as much as we try not to as well. Now, when you hear that, I wonder, some of us, there's probably one of two ways that we react to that. When we hear, followers of Jesus should expect rejection. Some people might respond, 
was thinking that, that that's a reason for fear. I don't want to be rejected. I hate feeling rejected. I don't want to offend anyone. But then some of us, on the other hand, maybe you take it as a point of pride. You're like, yeah, I don't mind offending people. Now, I suspect that for many here, the promise of rejection is troubling. Perhaps you've already experienced it, the, the, the rejection that comes because of Christ on some level, and, and it hurt you very deeply. Maybe someone lost respect for you when you began to share with them about your Savior. Or maybe you've lost relationships. Or maybe you were pushed away by a friend who you sought to help with the gospel. Maybe some of you feel like you've been ostracized in the workplace because of your faith. And so the natural response for many of us is to recoil from that sort of rejection. Who wants that? But for others of us, maybe you're not so scared of being offensive. In fact, you're fine with it. Maybe you kind of even enjoy it. And the problem with you is that maybe you offend too much. Unnecessarily. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus and you manage to never offend anyone, that is something to think about. I'm not saying you're necessarily unfaithful because the people in your life like you. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if you manage to never offend anyone with the words of Christ, with your faithful presence as a representative of Jesus, it is something to think about. I wonder, why is it? Is it because God's given me favor with the people around me? Praise the Lord for that. Or is it because you're living hypocritically or fearfully? Because you're hiding Christ and his message? Maybe, maybe you hope people will be saved by your niceness. People aren't saved by your niceness, and your niceness alone is not necessarily pointing people to Jesus. But on the other hand, if the offense comes constantly, <laughs> that's something to think about too, isn't it? Like, why is it? Why am I so hated? Is it because you've lacked compassion and sensitivity? Perhaps, perhaps it's not Christ and his message that's causing offense as much as it's you. I think it was, I think I quote him before, but I think it was Pastor Tim Keller who said that Jesus said that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, not those who are persecuted for obnoxiousness' sake. He calls us to not be obnoxious. Now, we've all failed on either end of this, haven't we? At times, we've hidden from rejection because we're paralyzed by fear, and at other times, we've brought it on unnecessarily, speaking unwise words and doing unwise things. So, so how do we get this right? How, how do we represent Christ well? Not, not just his message, but his character and his heart. And how do we deal with the fear that comes when we risk rejection? That's the last thing we need to look at. Jesus' followers know Jesus. This is the answer for us. This is how we can deal with rejection. This is how we can represent him well. It's because if you're a follower of Jesus, you know Jesus. And here, here's the main idea that I just want to communicate under, under this heading. The more intimately that you know Jesus, the less you will fear rejection. And the more accurately you'll represent him. Look at what Jesus does here. He sends out these, these, these men two by two to do exactly what he was doing. And imagine how frightened they must have been. And, and then, to make it worse, he says, by the way, don't, don't take any. Leave all your stuff. And so by sending these apostles out with nothing, Jesus is emphasizing your hope and your help 
is in your God. You've got nothing on you that's going to protect you and help you. You've got a staff. But you've got me. He gives them authority. He gives them a mission. He is the one who's implicitly calling them to depend wholly on him. There's no safety net here. And, and this is still true for Christ's church today. It's still true for his community of sent people. So we need to press into that. We need to press into knowing him and what we have in him. Because the more we know Jesus, the more we'll value the acceptance that we have in him. The more we'll value his approval and the less we will value the acceptance and approval of others. It will shift our perspective. Over time, the more we know him. And the more we know Jesus, the less we'll be bothered by being criticized or maligned or just not liked or left out or passed over. The more we know Jesus, the more we'll learn to relate to him in his rejection. The more we'll, we'll learn to even rejoice in the fact that we get to experience just, just a, a sliver of the kind of rejection that he experienced. That's what Paul prays for in Philippians 3, that he would know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and would share in his sufferings. And the more we know Jesus, the more we will realize that rejection is not going to kill you. Instead, it might actually help you learn to know and love Jesus more. You might learn that a little rejection is what some of us might need, perhaps, even. And more than anything, the more we know Jesus, the more we will come to appreciate the rejection that he endured for us in his crucifixion. You see, as bad as this scene was in Nazareth, this is not the worst rejection Jesus would ever experience, not even close. The worst rejection he ever experienced was at Calvary. Nazareth just foreshadows that. His crucifixion. You know, in the Roman world, crucifixion was the ultimate way for everyone to say, we don't want you. There is no place for you in our society. In fact, we are ushering you out of our society, and we're doing it in the most shameful way possible. We want everyone to know how much we despise you because of what you've done, because of what you represent, because of who you are. We utterly and in no unqualified terms, we reject you with mocking and violence. So much so that the name of the crucified one was not even to be uttered. It's as if they had been erased from history. Jesus experienced the ultimate rejection. And not only was it willing, it was substitutionary. That is, he endured it in our place. For people like us who have rejected God, for people like us, who have alienated ourselves from a loving God who made us for himself, who have resisted him, disobeyed him, who have sought to be our own rulers, kings of our own little kingdoms. He experienced rejection in our place so that anyone who believes in him will not have to experience rejection from God. Psalm 118 says, 
He was the stone that was rejected, but he became the chief cornerstone. That is, that is, he was rejected like a common criminal, worse than a common criminal, but he rose again as king. And he rules in his kingdom. And anyone who receives him has a right to be called the children of God, the citizens of his kingdom. You see, the, the key to facing rejection and surviving is knowing Jesus more deeply. Knowing the never-ending acceptance of God through faith in Jesus can free you from, from the panic and the fear of rejection. Oh, it's slow going sometimes, isn't it? It can take a long time. We see it in the scriptures. We see Peter, for instance, one of the apostles who was subject to fear. He seemed to fear the opinions of others deeply. But he grew. Slowly but surely, the Lord freed him of that. The more he got to know Jesus, the more he was freed from that enslaving, panic-inducing fear of not being liked, of being asked to leave. Knowing Jesus can free you from that aching desire to be accepted by people so that your desire for their acceptance can actually be replaced by a desire that they too would know Jesus. Knowing Jesus won't lead you to care less about people. You'll care more. You'll just care less about how they view you and more about how they view him for their sake. And so the answer is to know who Jesus is, to acknowledge him again and again. I'll end simply by getting somewhat practical. How do we get to know this Jesus? How do we know him? Well, this is, this is how we get to know him. <laughs> what we've been doing for the past 40 minutes is part of one way that we get to know him. It's not the only way. But we do need to be learning and, and experiencing who he is more and more in, in private moments with him. Time with Jesus in, in what might seem like mundane ways, simply reading his word, simply in prayer, asking him to show us more of who he is, listening to his spirit who cries out, Abba, Father, who reminds us that, that we are his children and we have nothing to fear. We need time with Jesus. We must make time to spend with Jesus. I've got two resources here that I'm going to offer you. I've got more copies there back here, but um, that I'm going to offer to anyone who wants them. I would just ask to use them. One of them is a book about Jesus. Some of you already have this. It's a book about Jesus. The other one is a prayer book that I think that if you intentionally use for a few days, you're going to find that it's a very good companion. And I think you'll find that both of these resources can help in some small way to bring you into a deeper and more intimate relationship with Christ. And this also not just happens, doesn't just happen privately. This has to happen in community too. Jesus sent these apostles out two by two, didn't he? Don't you think that mattered? There's a reason it was two by two. It helped, didn't it? it later on, we're going to read in verse 30 that, that in a couple of weeks, they, when they come back, they, they told Jesus all about the things that they had done and all the things that they had taught. And then Jesus says, come away with me a little while. Let's go to a desolate place. Let's rest. Let's recover. You see, so he's saying, well, I'm sending you out two by two to represent me together. But then when you come back, we're going to share stories. And we're going to share our burdens. And we're going to pray and we're going to rest together. 
and we're going to encourage one another. We need this church. We need to share our fears, our struggles. It's why gatherings like this matter, but it's also why we gather in care groups and the discipleship groups. It's why we gather here to sing and, and be reminded and remind each other of who Jesus is. Yes, he knew rejection. And because he knows new rejection, we will too. But more importantly, we can know him. And that makes all the difference. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for... We thank you for your willingness to receive those who for so long rejected you. We thank you, Lord, that even now some who are resisting you, you're giving them another opportunity to submit their lives to you and receive you. Would you please give them the grace they need? All, each of us, Lord, maybe some of us are resisting you in certain ways in certain areas of our lives. Lord, would you please give us the grace we need to let down our guard, to love and trust you. Prepare us for whatever suffering is ahead. We don't look forward to it, but we ask that at the end of the day, we would be found safe in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.